Well, would you please take the Word of God with me and uh, turn to the book of Exodus and uh, chapter 17. Exodus and uh, chapter 17. Uh, the seventeenth chapter of Exodus, as I mentioned last week, has two really events that took place. The first one, which we dealt with last week, is uh, you could entitle it the the chiding with Moses or the chiding with the Lord. And the idea of chiding is the conflict uh, with the people who have been murmuring uh, throughout uh, ever since. Uh, really, even when they uh, it really began when. Uh, Pharaoh made their bondage harder. They began to attack Moses and Aaron when that happened. And so they've been memoring ever since. Every, every time something uh, doesn't go their way, that reminds us of ourselves, does it not? That things, when things don't go our way, we uh, tend to grumble and murmur, and, and maybe on occasions it turns into uh, chiding. And the second part of the book of, uh, of uh, chapter 17 is the fight with Amalek. Uh, later, they'll be known as the Amalekites. And so we're going to spend some time in the second part of this chapter. We're going to read in just a moment, but we have already noted that the Old Testament was written for our admonition. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11 says, Now all these things happened unto them. And in 1 Corinthians 10, when he's mentioning that, he's talking in the context about uh, their redemption. He's talking about the manna, uh, their murmuring, uh, the water uh, coming from the rock. And he mentions that uh, that rock is Christ. And so we know that those things in the Old Testament are written for our admonition. He says in 1 Corinthians 10, 11, Now all these things happen unto them for in samples, and they are written for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the world are come. Now how much of the Old Testament was written for our learning? How much of it? All of it. That's what the Scripture says. All these things happened unto them, and they are written for our admonition. And so, uh, they may not, we, when we think about the Old Testament, we, we might uh, look at things and we say, well, we're not going through that. We're uh, not in bondage like they were, in physical bondage like they were, and uh, we don't have the trouble of being in the wilderness and needing food or, or needing water. And I think we understand that, but nonetheless, hopefully we're learning some things about ourselves, um, about the Lord, about human nature, and how God provides for His people. We should not discount those things. They are written for our admonition. Now, we also find in all of that, if they are written for admonition, the idea of admonition is we find not only some truths from those Old Testament passages, but we also find some practical things that help us, that we can use for our lives. And so far, really in the book of Exodus, we, we've seen that a lot has really taught us about Christ. And as the book of Hebrews says, those things were a shadow of things to come. Uh, they were not the thing, but they were a shadow or 
a picture looking forward to Christ. And we've seen that in Exodus that Christ, uh, we saw Christ in the Passover. Um, we saw uh, even a, a sense of Christ in the parting of the Red Sea. Uh, we saw Christ in the waters of Mara being turned from bitter to sweetness. And we even saw Christ in the manna. Uh, in John 6, in the New Testament, Jesus said, I am the true manna that came from heaven. And we know last time in Exodus chapter 17 that Christ is the rock. And that's what 1 Corinthians chapter 10 says. It says that that rock was Christ. And so we not only see a lot of teaching about Christ and pictures and, and, and shadows of Christ, but we also see a lot of teaching about ourselves. In what way? In the murmuring, in the chiding, um, early on in chapter 14, in, in the fear of the children of Israel, and also in the constant desire that they had to go back to Egypt every time something went wrong in their lives. And so we learn some things about ourselves. And so before we read, I, we know that God did those things to them, according to Deuteronomy chapter 8, to humble them, to prove them. And so we learn that uh, later in Deuteronomy chapter 8. And so no doubt they're, they're going to learn some things that God is trying to teach them. And we know it's also written for our admonition that we can receive a benefit from this. And so the question I have here is before we read the passage is, what are the children of Israel going to come away with? What are they going to learn from the Lord? And then we have to ask ourselves this question, uh, what do we need to come away with? What do we need to learn about the Lord in this passage? So, Exodus chapter 17, we're going to begin reading in verse 8. Let's stand together, if you would, with me for the reading of God's Word. Exodus 17, verse 8. The Word of God says, Then, that word indicates, After the water proceeded from the rock, a great miracle, and the people now in the wilderness of Rephaim are receiving water, sustenance, uh, by a miracle from God. Then, so as this miracle is coming forth, came Amalek and fought with Israel in Rephidim. And Moses said unto Joshua, Choose us out men, and go out, fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the rod of God in mine hand. So Joshua did as Moses had said to him, and fought with Amalek. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. And it came to pass, when Moses held up his hand, that Israel prevailed. And when he let down his hand... Amalek prevailed, but Moses' hands were heavy, and they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat thereon, and Aaron and Hur stayed up his hands, the one on the one side and the other on the other side, and his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua discomfited Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. And the Lord said unto Moses, 
write this for a memorial in a book and rehearse it in the ears of Joshua. For I will utterly put out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it Jehovah Nisi. For he said, Because the Lord hath sworn that the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. I would like to bring your attention here to verse 15. Moses built an altar and called the name of it Jehovah Nisi. Let me just tell you what that means. Jehovah our banner. Jehovah our ensign, our banner. So I want to preach on that this evening. The Lord our banner. That's, how, that's what the children of Israel are going to come away with from this. The Lord our banner. And I think that that's what we have to also come away with. If those things are written for our admonition and our learning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, help us to be instructed. And Lord, as, as we read about those events that uh, literally happened. We know that there is a spiritual lesson in those things for us today. A way that we might benefit, that we might be admonished, uh, that we might be instructed. And so, Lord, uh, use your word this evening uh, and the conviction and the work and the voice of your spirit to guide us in the truth, uh, that we might learn some things that might be helpful to us. And uh, whether it is convicting or comforting, uh, may your spirit have his way this evening. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. They're going to come away with this uh, second event in this chapter with remembering uh, as uh, Moses built an altar and he called the name of it, the altar, Jehovah uh, Nisi, uh, Jehovah our banner, the Lord our banner. And I'm going to talk about that, but as we, before we get there, we're going to progress in the, our passage that we read and just take it one step at a time. And the first thing when we come to our passage that we notice is immediately is their enemies. Or we could say their enemy singular. Uh, the Bible doesn't mention here the Amalekites in the plural sense. It mentions Amalek. It says Amalek and the people of Amalek. And so it's the single, singular uh, name of Amalek that is used. And so here is their enemy singular. And we notice some things immediately from the text. There's not really, a, uh, if you would, a transition or an explanation. They go from water coming from the rock. And immediately as this miracle takes place, the Bible says, Then came Amalek. And so it seems here to be very quickly. They go from uh, the uh, water coming forth from the rock and then Amalek. And so this event of the fight immediately uh, proceeds after this great miracle from God. Now we know in the New Testament sense that that rock was Christ, is a picture of Christ. And so in keeping with that, there's an enemy that comes after that to fight with them. And the question at the onset is, well, what are they fighting about? And I think 
if you took the Bible pattern thus far, all throughout the book of Genesis, and also in the beginning of the book of Exodus, is there's always a lot of striving over water, over wells. You find that all throughout the book of Genesis. You even found that in the book of Exodus. Remember when uh, Moses ran away from Egypt and he uh, saved um, uh, those um, ladies, um, uh, I can't remember now his, uh, his name. What's his father-in-law? Jethro, his father-in-law. Uh, his daughters, right? Because why? There was a conflict over the well. So there's always fighting over water. By the way, at that time, water was very important. And so no doubt when the water comes forth, we're thinking here that Amalek wants that water. And the only way to get that water is to get rid of the Israelites. Israel did not provoke this fight. Amalek provoked this fight. As a matter of fact, when you read verse 8 and verse 9, verse 8 says that then came Amalek and fought with Israel. It doesn't say that Israel came and fought with Amalek. It says Amalek came and fought with Israel. And then in verse 9, Moses said unto Joshua, choose men. And so notice the fight was precipitated by Amalek and his people, and Israel needs to respond to that fight. Now, I just think, no, the text doesn't say to us, so this is, I'm just saying, I think it's over water, perhaps, uh, but nonetheless, God records this for us so that we can learn some things. And so, we notice here, that, number one, their enemy. Now, why did Amalek fight with Israel? Uh, it's not explicitly stated, but nonetheless, it's a fight. The history of what we find is could we could allude it's probably maybe to over the water. Uh, we don't really necessarily know. But who is Amalek? Who, who is Amalek? Well, the first time that we read about Amalek is back in Genesis chapter thirty-six. If you turn there, hold your place there, and turn back with me to uh, Genesis chapter thirty-six. Genesis thirty-six, and uh, notice with me <clears throat> Genesis thirty-six. Um, at the beginning, you'll see in verse 1 that these are the generations of Esau. Now, uh, we know uh, Esau and Jacob, the conflict that was there, um, that Jacob received the birthright, he would receive the blessing, and, and Esau, uh, he, he wanted it but didn't get it. Remember, he sold his birthright, he despised his birthright, that's what the Bible says. And, and so uh, Esau is a man, we could say, of the flesh. He despised spiritual things. Uh, he despised his birthright. And again, if there was a, uh, any spirituality in him, he would have understood the importance of the birthright. But evidently, he was mainly a man of the flesh, a man of the field. And we made some point. I preached through the entire book of Genesis and talked about how uh, he spent most of his time away from home and he forsook the responsibilities that he had because he was always out and about. And so Esau is a representation often of, of the flesh, of a man who's completely given over to the lust of his flesh. Now notice here, in this, these generations of Esau, go down with me to verse 12. The Bible says, uh, And uh, Timnah was concubine to Eliaphaz, Esau's son, and she bare to Eliaphaz, what's the word, name? Amalek. These were the sons of Ada, Esau's wife. And so here we learn that Amalek is the grandson of Esau. That's what we learn. And so we read again the, the generations of Esau. Now I believe here those, when we read those generations, they're important. They're not only important for the, the spiritual uh, seed. We know that part of that, really from Genesis chapter 3, 
We know that the seed of the woman is going to bruise the head of the serpent. And so part of the Old Testament was given to us so that we might know who the Messiah would be. Who would it be that would bruise the head of the serpent? Well, we know Christ is the seed. And so part of the Old Testament is showing us here the validity of when Messiah comes. We know who he is. And so we have, uh, we know from the very beginning, really Seth was a seed instead of Abel. That's what the Bible tells us. And so you have the, from the very beginning the generations of Seth in contrast with the generations of Cain. Uh, then when you read uh, after, uh, after uh, Abraham, you read about the generations of Ishmael and then the generations of Isaac. And, and Ishmael was the product of the flesh, right? Them attempting to do something because they didn't think that God would provide a seed. And so it's the working of the flesh. Ishmael is known as the product of the flesh. Isaac is known as the product of the Spirit. Why? Because the Bible tells us that Abraham's seed was departed from him. He was too old to have children. Same thing for Sarah. She was barren. But yet God miraculously provided Isaac. So while Ishmael is a representation of the work of the flesh, Isaac is a representation of the work of the Spirit. It was impossible for him to have children, but God intervened and provided a seed. Well, it's the same when you go then to Isaac, his son was Esau and Jacob. And so again, Esau was the product of the flesh, and that's what Isaac wanted. He wanted Esau. But God says, no, Jacob. And by the way, God made it clear from the very beginning uh, that the older or the, that the, the, the older would serve the younger. And so you have this uh, fight all throughout the book of Genesis between the product of the flesh and if you would, in the sense, the, the product of what God wanted, the, the product at the direction of God. And so now we, we uh, come here and we know that Amalek is the descendants of those who are the work of the flesh, who are representative of that. And so there's picture for us, that, and the New Testament speaks of that as it talks about Esau was a profane fornicator. That's what the Bible says in the New Testament. And so Amalek is the grandson of Esau. And uh, by the way, this conflict, uh, we know that Edom then would be, right? Edom would be in great conflict with Israel. And so this continues now in the book of Exodus that you have on the one side uh, the descendants of two brothers, Jacob and Esau. And so here Amalek is the descendants of Esau. And we remember the great conflict between Esau and Jacob. Now, if we, that's kind of before, so we know where he comes from. But then when we read here beyond this point, what is it, how does God look on this event here in Exodus chapter 17? And what does he say about this event later? Uh, go with me, if you hold your place still in uh, Exodus 17, go with me to Numbers 24. Numbers 24, let's, let's find how we reference back this event of what happened in Exodus 17. So Numbers 24. And uh, notice with me, <clears throat> verse 20. Numbers 24, verse 20. And when he looked on Amalek, he took up his parable and said, Amalek was the first of the nations, but his latter end shall be that he perish forever. So here, when he's referring to Amalek was the first of the nations, he is referring specifically to the fact that Amalek was the first nation to make war with Israel. Since when? Well, since the redemption out of Egyptian bondage. 
And so God looks back at Amalek and says, these were the first, the first nation to make war with the children of Israel. Now, go with me to Deuteronomy 25. Uh, in the book of Deuteronomy in chapter 25, we have enough for another reference back and we learn about the wickedness here of uh, Amalek and the people of Amalek. Uh, notice Deuteronomy 25 and notice verse 17 and 18. And we'll read verse 19 as well. So notice Deuteronomy 25, 17. Remember what Amalek did unto thee by the way when ye were come forth out of Egypt. So by the way, there, there was a lot of fights with, with the Amalekites. But here he's referring specifically to that first fight since they were redeemed out of Egyptian bondage. And so he says, when you were come forth out of Egypt, you remember what Amalek did unto thee in the way. This was not Israel provoking a fight. It was Amalek doing something to Israel. Verse 18, How he met thee by the way and smote the hindmost of thee. Even Now what does that mean, the hindmost? So if the children of Israel were, were moving forward, the hindmost would be the back. Now who would be at the back? The Bible tells us. Even all that were feeble behind thee when thou wast faint and weary, and he feared not God. So here's the wickedness of Amalek. Now we don't read that in Exodus chapter 17, but then we have a revelation of that in Deuteronomy 25, that when Amalek went to fight against the children of Israel, he attacked the back, he attacked the weak people, those who were faint in the back. That's what he did. And why did he do that? The Bible says because he did not fear God. By the way, that uh, stands at, uh, at the root of, of much sin. The reason why our nation is in the condition it is in is because there is no fear of God. There is no fear of God. And uh, the fear of God uh, changes a lot of things. The Bible says that, uh, that the fear of God is the beginning of knowledge, that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. And so you, if you take God, the fear of God out, there is no longer any wisdom and knowledge. It is connected, and you cannot disconnect those things. So they did not fear God. Now he says in verse 19, Therefore it shall be when the Lord thy God hath given thee rest from all thine enemies round about in the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee for an inheritance to possess it, that thou shalt blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. Thou shalt not forget it. Now it's interesting because uh, Amalek was the first nation that warred against Israel. Uh, Amalek was the one that, uh, because they did not fear God, they attacked uh, from the back for those who were feeble, those who were faint, those who were weak. And uh, Amalek did not fear God. Amalek is the product of the flesh and uh, uh, stands against God. And uh, it is one nation specifically, as we've seen throughout the Bible in the Old Testament, that God says, I'm going to completely wipe them out. And even the remembrance of them. Now, the idea here is we're thinking, well, wait a minute. We're still talking about Amalek today. What do you mean he's going to blot out the remembrance of them? We still remember them. Well, I think that somehow we can uh, apply this spiritually. If, uh, if Esau was the, the product of the flesh, and if Amalek is the product of the flesh, uh, I think there is a maybe a, a picture, an application that we can apply here that uh, the timing of what we've seen, the children of Israel, by the way, the children of Israel did not fight, have to fight Egypt. Right? They didn't. 
They didn't take up arms and fight against Egypt to, to, to find deliverance. What happened? The Passover. God intervened. And uh, remember when they were redeemed, they go by the Red Sea and the Egyptian army comes back. Did they fight against the Egyptian army when they came after them? No. God fought, 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 fought for them and God opened the sea and they walked through. And then God uh, brought the waters back as they, were, they tried to go on dry ground like the children of Israel. And God completely buried them and God defeated the Egyptian army. And so uh, they haven't fought at any point. Their redemption was entirely of God. But now that they're in the wilderness, their struggles, and now that they're in the wilderness, they begin to fight. But God says, I will completely one day wipe out Amalek forever. I think here, and this is me understanding that some of those things are for our learning and their picture. Why would he say that specifically about Amalek if it is representative of the flesh? I believe that one day, as we are Christians, we understand that we uh, don't need to fight and engage in a fight to be redeemed. Redemption is entirely the work of God. We are saved by grace through faith. It is not of ourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. But now that we are redeemed, we are, the Bible says in Romans chapter 6, that we are set free from the bondage of sin and death. But we are free now to what? To fight the flesh. Before we could not. Now we can fight the flesh. But guess what? One day the flesh will be entirely removed. Why? Because we will be like Christ. So I think there's a, a picture there for us. That God specifically says that Amalek will be completely wiped out one day. And so our flesh one day. Now it is not yet eradicated. But one day it will be completely eradicated. And we call that, according to Romans chapter 8, our glorification we will be like him for we shall see him as he is what a wonderful day to think about so these are a few things about uh, the Amalekites about Amalek and Amalek stands as the first enemy and now now they are fighting they've never fought up to this point but now they are fighting with Amalek and uh, as we continue in our text, go back to Exodus chapter 17. Uh, notice as we continue in verse uh, 9, the Bible says, And Moses said unto Joshua, Choose out men and go out, fight with Amalek tomorrow. I will stand on the top of the hill with the rod of God in mine hand. So Joshua did as Moses had said to him and fought with Amalek. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. And it came to pass when Moses held up his hand that Israel prevailed and when he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. So here they're fighting, and it's the first time that you find them physically engaged in a fight. They haven't fought up to this point, but now they are fighting with the sword. Now, verse 13 tells us that Joshua discomfited Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. So there was a physical fight going on. Amalek had already attacked the weak, the faint, and the fearful in the back. And so now he's responding and they're fighting with the sword. And so in this first fight again, they had been delivered from bondage without fighting. Uh, neither had they been delivered from Egypt's pursuit by the Red Sea. They had done that without fighting. And their deliverance was entirely wrought of God. And by the way, in, in both cases, they did have to demonstrate their faith. Let, let me put it that way. Remember, they had to put blood on the doorpost. And that was what? The demonstration of their faith. 
God says, if you put blood, I will pass over you. And so the demonstration of their faith was to put the blood on the doorpost. You remember at the Red Sea? How could they be delivered from the Egyptians? Well, God said what? He said, go forward. He asked them to go forward before he opened the Red Sea. They had to start walking. And as they began to walk, the waters opened. That was the demonstration of their faith. And so we see that it was entirely of God and their faith is demonstrated. Now they must fight against Amalek. Uh, There was no war before they had been delivered from bondage. And so it is in the Christian life, by the way. There is no war until we are saved. Now when we are saved, now the war begins. The war with what? Well, the world, the flesh, and the devil. You see, why was there no war? Well, because we were entirely given to the lust of the flesh. Because we were the children of the devil. Because we were blinded by the things of the world. But now that we are saved, there's a fight. And by the way, let's be thankful for the fight. You see, I think sometimes some people struggle because they get saved and they have this idea that now they're they're not going to have any more struggles and there's not going to be any more. No, no, no. It, It begins the struggle. You didn't have struggles before. But now you have them and now you can have the victory over them. And so we see here, as we look at our text, first of all, their enemy. But then we we proceed and we see, secondly, uh, their dependence. So this is important because I know they're fighting, but yet at the same time, they're not going to win on their own strength. Notice with me if we uh, continue in verse 11. And it came to pass when Moses held up his hand that Israel prevailed. And when he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. Okay, now, the whole lifting up of hands, the Bible doesn't say here that Moses was praying, but typically the lifting up of hands in the scripture does indicate prayer. Let me give you a few references, Psalm 28.2, hear the voice of my supplication when I cry unto thee, when I lift up my hands toward the holy oracle. First Timothy, even the New Testament says in 1 Timothy 2.8, I will therefore that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. And so this lifting up of hands, I believe here, is demonstrating Moses' dependence. Lord, we need you. We need you. Now, when we look here, there's something interesting that we find here because evidently when his hands were up, they were winning. When his hands were down, they were losing. So then then they devised a way in verse 12. So Moses' hands got heavy. Well, yeah, they would get heavy. Uh, they, they would get heavy o- over time. You, you can't keep your hands up uh, for, for a long time. Now, we do know uh, that the Bible says in um, uh, that he had the rod in uh, verse 9 at the end. He says, I will stand on the top of the hill with the rod of God in mine hand. And so it's not just his hands are lifted up. Uh, one of his hands has the rod in his hand. And so here when we get to this place in verse 12, his hands were heavy. 
So they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat thereon. And so they said, all right, sit down, because uh, he's been standing for a while. So sit down, get some rest. And Aaron and her stayed up his hands, the one on the one side and the other on the other side. And his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And so if we uh, illustrate this, let's illustrate this. I don't always do illustration, but let's illustrate this. Okay. All right, let's do Pierce, Tim, and David. All right. So, let's have... Uh, Pierce, how about your Moses? All right. And Tim, you're her. Her is the name. All right. And then you're going to be Aaron, David. All right? And so, uh, well, you're not seated down. So Moses get up on the top of the mountain and her. Whoop. And uh, what's your name? Aaron. Aaron. They're standing on the top of the mountain and Moses, hold your arms up. All right. And uh, don't have a rod here. Anybody got a rod anywhere? No. All right. But he's, he, he's holding a rod in his hand. And uh, after a while, he gets tired. And as he's getting tired, uh, her and Aaron, they come and they, they put a stone. Now, this is not a stone. It's much more comfortable than a stone. And they began to hold up his hands. So what's the illustration of that? Uh, here is the children of Israel. They're all fighting. They, they can see Moses on the top of the hill. And when his hands were raised, they were winning. When the hand was down, they were losing. And so I, maybe they made the connection, but they would maybe look up every once in a while and say, let's make sure his hands are still up. And the hands are still up. The victory was won because the hands of Moses were up. But the victory was won not because Moses was strong. Do we understand that? His hands were up. That's why they won. But they didn't win because he was strong. As a matter of fact, what that communicates is that Moses is too weak. He can't do it himself. He doesn't have the strength in himself to win the victory. He, he, he is not strong enough to do that on his own. And therefore, he needs help. Now, it's interesting that he would bring Aaron and, and her. Uh, Aaron... Is, is the high priest. And the generations of Aaron would be the high priest. And so uh, he is the one that stands in... He's not Christ, but he's a picture of Christ because Jesus Christ is the great high priest. He, he's just a shadow of what Christ would to be in a far greater and better degree. He's just a small representation of Jesus Christ. And so by the representation of Aaron, as, as Moses says, uh, I, I need a mediator between God and man. And her, uh, the name her means light. That's interesting. Now, I'm not saying this on on any specific authority of any scripture that says that because his name means this, this is the application we make. But I'm thinking those things are, are given for our learning. And so if Aaron is representative of Jesus Christ as a the high priest, Christ is the great high priest. And her means light. Well, we understand that as believers that light in the scriptures is representative of the Holy Spirit of God. And we know as believers that the moment we get saved, we have the indwelling Holy Spirit. And guess what? The New Testament tells tells us that the only way we can have victory is through Christ and through the power of the Spirit. Thank you, gentlemen. You can go down. 
So we see their enemies, and then we see their dependence. And so here it is. The only thing we learn about Moses is that he is a weak man. Correct? They can't say after the battle, Wow, Moses, you are so strong. Look at your great abilities. You are No, he was not able to do it. As a matter of fact, if he did not get the help he needed, they would have lost. Can I encourage you today? If we do not get the help we need, we will lose the battle against the flesh, the world, and the devil. We will lose. By the way, both Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit are both making intercession for us. The Holy Spirit, He, uh, Jesus Christ, ever lives to make intercessions for the saints. And the Holy Spirit, according to Romans chapter, chapter 8, He makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. The Spirit comes alongside us and He helps us. Why? Because of our infirmities. Because we are too weak over the enemy and so we need that help. And so what we learn when we look about the enemy, we learn about their dependence and what we learn is his weakness. That's, that's what we're communicating here is that Moses is weak and he needs help. He can't do this alone. And so victory over Amalek was not determined by the strength of Moses. Neither was it determined by the ability of Joshua to fight and to lead the men of Israel into the fight. Why? Because as soon as the, 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 the arms went down, Joshua was losing. It was not anything in his own ingenuity, in his own, if you would, uh, 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 knowledge of how to make war. No. The answer was not found in man. The answer was found in the Lord. Now let me give you some scripture. Isaiah chapter 35 verse 3 says, Strengthen ye the weak hands, and confirm the feeble knees. Say to them that are of a fearful heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. Even God with the recompense. He will come and save you. What do we learn from that? That we are weak. We're fearful. Our knees buckle. And we fall. But He can save us. Isaiah 40.30 says, Even the youth shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall, shall utterly fall. But they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Who? Those that wait upon the Lord. Those who are completely dependent on the Lord. And by the way, the only way for us to be dependent on the Lord is for us to understand our weakness. Somebody who thinks he is strong does not seek for help. Only the one who is weak seeks for help. And so it is, by the way, in the Christian life. The Bible says we ought to take heed lest we fall. We should consider ourselves, lest we also be tempted. And if any man think himself to be, to be something when he is nothing, he deceiveth himself. See, the greatest way to gain strength is to declare our weakness. By the way, that's exactly what Paul said. You remember when he had the infirmity? He asked God three times to remove that infirmity from him. 
And uh, God would not remove the infirmity from him. And so he said, uh, But he said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee. For my strength is made perfect in what? Excuse me? You mean to tell me, Pastor, that the only way for the strength of God to be manifested is in our weakness? That's exactly right. You see, Paul recognized that God allowed that to happen so that he couldn't boast of himself. And look back and say, look at all I've done. Why? Because he knew he was weak. But the, the strength of God is made perfect in weakness. You know what that means? That if we do not see ourselves as feeble and weak and in need of help, we will not receive the strength from the Lord. We cannot. Doesn't the Bible say, God, James, God resists the proud, but He gives grace to the humble? He resists the proud. He can't help him. He can't help him. But He gives grace to the humble. Now, we come to verse 13, and the Bible says, and, and Joshua discomfited Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. Now, the, the word discomfited here is, is interesting. He doesn't say that he eradicated Amalek. He, defe- he doesn't use the word defeated, although he, he won the battle. But Amalek was not eradicated, neither were the people of Amalek eradicated. He only received victory on that day against them. In other words, the enemy would keep coming back and keep coming back and keep coming back. And by the way, uh, so is the flash, isn't it? <laughs> that even one day we may get the victory over the flash, and, but then the next day, guess what? You wake up in the morning, who's there looking in the mirror? The flash. And the flash says, hey, I want to be in control. And so he discomfited Amalek and the people with the edge of the sword. Now, we know for us that our, uh, our sword is the Word of God. The Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, that the Word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, uh, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. The, the uh, New Testament, spiritually, uh, the, the, the sword is the Word of God. Now we come to verse 14, and we, we, so we see their enemy, we see their dependence, but then we lastly see their banner. How, what, what, do, what do they need to come away with? Uh, why did God allow this to happen? J- just like all the other things that we've seen. Why did God bring them to the Red Sea? Because He wanted to show Himself to them, and He wanted to prove them. And Why did God bring them to the bitter waters of Marah? Because he wanted to teach something to them there. Why did God bring them in the wilderness of sin and there was no food? Because God wanted to bring for them the manna so that they would learn that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Why did God bring them in the wilderness of of Rephidim there uh, with no water? Well, God was was doing something. And why would God now allow the enemy to come and to, to fight with Israel? So here's what they need to come away with. Verse 14. And the Lord said unto Moses, Write this for a memorial in the book, and rehearse it in the ears of Joshua. For, by the way, when they enter into the promised land, there's going to be a very similar scene. 
Remember, Joshua is going to see the angel of the Lord, and, and so I, let me not preach that. Okay, let's stay right here before I go on a rabbit trail. Notice, for I will utterly put out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it Jehovah Nisi. For he said, because the Lord hath sworn that the Lord will, will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. All right, so several things here. Uh, he says that he's going to utterly put out the remembrance of Amalek. Then in verse 16, he says that uh, the Lord, and I like how he says, the Lord will have war with Amalek. Not the children of Israel. The Lord will have war from generation to generation. So we come away, there's, there's this ongoing war. Now eventually, they're going to be completely put out. But they're going to remember the title of God. Jehovah Nisi, the Lord, our banner. Now when we think about the banner here, in ancient uh, wars, armies would often carry a banner uh, that represented their, their country or their city. And the soldiers were sad to fight under that banner under the direction and in the defense of that country. And that was done really in ancient times. You could see that, uh, you know, often they would have certain soldiers that would designate it and they would hold on. And sometimes you look back and maybe some, some old uh, documentaries about uh, those, uh, those wars and those battles. And often you'll find soldiers portrayed and they don't have any weapons. They, they just have a banner. And it's representative of who they're fighting for or who they're fighting under. Now today, in modern warfare, we, we don't have soldiers just holding a banner. That, you know, I think we've come to an understanding that maybe that's not the best thing for those soldiers to have no weapons. But uh, typically, there's a way you can identify. Uh, there's uh, several scenes that have been depicted uh, with when American wars have been fought. Uh, you think about American soldiers climbing to the top of the mountain and putting the American flag at the top. What is that? It, it, it's, it's, that's our banner. That's who we're fighting under. That's who we're fighting for. And so today you could think about soldiers. They have that, that emblem on their shoulder, the American flag, and, and their tanks and their planes. They all have that, 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 that banner, if you would, in a sense, that flag that says, here's who we're representing. Here's who we're fighting for. Now at that time they don't have a banner, but here they're going to leave this war. And, and the application here is that the children of Israel were under... The Lord's banner. They fought under the banner of Jehovah. Uh, they fought at the direction of the Lord. They, they fought in His name. And so no doubt there is that aspect. Uh, that, that we are the people of God. We are the people that have been redeemed. We stand under the banner of the Lord. He, it is who we fight for. It is who we represent. And we are under the banner of Jehovah. He is our banner. But I think there is something even more that speaks. It's not that just the fighting in His name. I believe here by what we find in this text, the Lord, our banner, is not only that we are fighting in His name, but we are also fighting by His strength. He is our banner. He is the one that gives us strength. 
And it's interesting, before they go to the promised land, you remember what the people, when they think back about Egypt and what they did to the Amalekites, and they look back through the wilderness wanderings, the people in the promised land there, the heathen nation says, we've heard what God has done. We've heard whose banner you've been under. And they're going to get a, a good glimpse of that banner right when they walk in and the walls of Jericho come down. Did they fight? No, they learned that Jehovah is our banner. The Lord is our banner. We not only fight under His banner, but we fight by His strength. You see, when it's all said and done, what, how do we come away with this? When, it's all, when we reach the end of our life, what are we going to say? Well, I know what we ought to say. We ought to say, the Lord our banner. We were under His banner, and we fought in His strength. We don't reach the end of the line and say, Hey, look at what we did. As a matter of fact, isn't that what God warns the children of Israel? He says in the book of Deuteronomy, When you get into the promised land, don't say, My strength and my power hath gotten me this. Neither will we say, when we reach the other side, my power and my strength have gotten me this. We have to say, the Lord, our banner. It is Him. The only thing we learn from this passage is that the enemy is coming after the children of Israel. Israel is weak, but God is Israel's banner. And what we need to do by application, if this is written for our admonition, we also have to learn that there is an enemy today. We could say the world, the flesh, and the devil, but what we fight personally to it with every day is the flesh. And we have to learn that we are weak and that we need God. In the end, we say, how do we get strength and victory? Because the Lord is our banner. So here's what I'll just leave you with this. Stop fighting in your own strength. Fight in the strength of the Lord. But you can only do so when you recognize your weakness. When you recognize your weakness. If you accomplish something for the Lord, and at the end of that accomplishment, you do this, maybe it wasn't the Lord. But if you accomplish something for the Lord or you, you're able to see great victory in your life. If it was the Lord, the only thing you will be able to say is, Glory to God, He helped me. I couldn't have done it without Him. You see, when God is involved, He gets the glory. If it's of me, then I get the glory what I've done. And so, may the Lord help us. Let's bow our heads for prayer.